joining us on another episode of Popcorn for Breakfast with your co-host, Kirk. Hello, hello. I'm your other co-host, Cam. We are back after uh, a little bit of a hiatus here, so thank you so much for being with us. Our our schedule, our recording schedule has been a little herky-jerky over the last few weeks, so let's... Uh, is that a thing? <laughs> Did I just make that up? It hmm. sounded... I mean, I wouldn't have said it if I hadn't heard it before, right? Or... or I, don't I think know. you just invented that. I hope it's not like some something bad. <laughs> it's, it's outrageously offensive. I'm not actually. looking. I'm not looking it up. I, I'm pleading. I'm pleading ignorance. I have no idea what that saying means. But uh, it has been, nevertheless. And the reason for that is, so let's let's wind the clock back, like the Joker in the Dark Knight. Wind the clock back a year. These cops and lawyers wouldn't dare cross. Any of you, right? How was that? How was my Heath Ledger? That was fantastic. Thank you. Uh, I've only seen that movie five billion times, so it's burned into my brain. But to go back, last week we streamed on Monday, and then Tuesday night, Kirk and I were lucky enough to go see the Batman before pretty much anybody. Before I mean, at least the people in our in our screening saw it, and a few other people around the country saw it. But we saw it in IMAX. IMAX, IMAX, yes. IMAX. And it was uh, a mind-blowing, earth-shattering, gut-busting experience in IMAX, but we got to see it um, in an early screening there. So our plan was to review it Wednesday night and uh, drop an episode. But we had Kirk got sick, then I went to Colorado, and so like literally back-to-back days. Kirk was sick, couldn't record. I went to Colorado, couldn't record. The whole deal. So, got back this week. I'm back at sea level, feeling great, feeling like I can actually breathe now. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're ready to review the Batman. And this episode has been recorded on uh, date of recording is March 10th, Mario Day, Mario Day, and oh, yes. will release on March 11th, Friday. So, if you're hearing it right now, it's at least March 11th, and we are so glad you guys are here with us. That means the Batman. By the time you're hearing this, has been out for. Uh, a week. It's been out for one week, and it has done remarkably well at the box office. Which, I mean, to say that about a big superhero film these days probably sounds silly, but the reality is, I don't think many people saw this movie grossing 128 million domestically last weekend the way that it did, and it did, and it's been a smash uh, success in terms of box office numbers at the very least. And we'll see what it has in store this weekend. So. Big bucks, big bucks. I'm I'm counting on it. Big dollars. Kirk and I were in obviously because we were in a advanced screening. It was called the fans first screening. Um, our screening was obviously <laughs> packed to the brims. Uh, we actually had a hard time. I, I had to get tickets. I, I I bought our tickets like 25 minutes after they dropped, and uh, there were only like, you know, maybe 10 to 10 to 15, 16 seats left in the in the whole theater. So. It was uh, it was a hot ticket, and I think it seems like it was a hot ticket all over the United States of America this weekend, um, as well as internationally. So, it's a big film. It's what Kirk and I both dubbed at the beginning of the year. We dubbed this our most anticipated film of the year, Kirk. Um, we said that of all the amazing films coming out in 2022, that the Batman is the one that's most anticipated. And the fact that it came out in March... Um, we didn't have to wait very long for this highly anticipated film, and we are ready to review it. Kirk, 
Anything else we need to add before we get into the thick of it? No, it'd be fun to see at the end of the year if there were some like secret projects that come out uh, that we that were not announced to say like, no, man, that that blew Batman out of the water. Who knows? We have no idea at this point. Yeah. But as of right now, I, I love that you brought that up. It still is um, the most anticipated film of 2022. Yeah. And so that means it's all it's all uphill from here, guys. I mean, it's just not going to be it's not going to be good. No, it'll mm-hmm. be fine. We'll survive. Um, but let's talk about the Batman and see if it lived up to our hype. I mean, both of us calling it our most anticipated, that that comes with some pretty big, big shoes to fill in terms of uh, quality. But let's talk about it. So I'm going to be synopsing this week, the Batman. And the Batman is the latest installment of one of the most cinematized comic book characters of all time. He might even be the most cinematized uh, comic book character, the one who's been on the silver screen the most often. Um, this story tells a story about Bruce Wayne in a way that I don't really think we have seen before. And before I go any further, I will just reiterate that this is a spoiler full podcast. So if you've not seen the Batman and you don't want to be spoiled on anything related to the plot, I will kindly ask you to exit and then re click this podcast whenever it's all done. Um, if you're watching on YouTube, same thing. Now's the time to get out before you get spoiled. But I really do think this is a different take on Batman than we've ever seen. It's a different take on Gotham City than anything we've seen on the screen before. And really the story here is that um, our Batman, our Bruce Wayne, is uh, young. You know, he's he's sort of a younger version of Batman than I think we've gotten recently. And he is already into his crime-fighting career as the Batman. This is his second year on the scene, and he's come across... Um, villains already that we don't know of, but he's now faced with a new task of hunting down a serial killer known as the Riddler, uh, who is taking credit for all these crimes that are going on all around Gotham city. And, uh, during a mayoral election and, uh, many other things that are happening. And he finds himself tangled in a web that is connected to him. That's connected to, uh, uh, Carmine Falcone and, and the and the Salvatore Moroni uh, crime families. He finds himself tangled in a web with uh, Gotham City Police Department and the mayoral race and all of these different things. Uh, he's sort of working side by side with Detective Jim Gordon, uh, who is still a detective or, or I think maybe captain at this point, if I remember mm-hmm. correctly. And they are working together, uh, hand in hand, and, and very visibly working together to solve this crime. So along the way, he uncovers tons of different things about his family, his past, uh, things that perhaps he didn't really want to rock the boat on. He really just, this version of Batman really just wants to kind of like keep the city clean and and fulfill his destiny of, of making Gotham city, uh, you know, paying, paying his debt, I guess, to the city and, and, and cleaning it up in the name of his parents and, and, being their legacy and, and things like that. And so it's just a very different take, but one that is is interesting. So I think a couple of things you come to expect in a Batman movie, you come to expect the flashback, the childhood Bruce Wayne flashback, leaving the opera, you know, parents are mugged, killed, etc. the whole deal. None of that here. There, there was nothing. I mean, uh, I think Thomas and Martha Wayne are both – very well woven into this plot, but mm-hmm. the director, Matt Reeves, and uh, the the story never takes us down that road. And really, it just stays contained within 
the confines of this story. And in fact, everything that comes up between Salvatore Marone, uh, the Carmine Falcone, like those guys, it's all tangled into the Riddler's serial killing spree and all of the, the web that casts out of that. So it's all tied back to this one central storyline, this one set of crimes, and this one main antagonist being the Riddler. That's right. Anything I missed, Kirk? Yeah, you know what? I, nothing that you missed. I think that they decided not to put the Wayne's murder in because they didn't want to go that dark. So that's why we saw, you know, the musical number in this movie. Yes. We saw the bright, vibrant colors. Yes. We saw the Teletubbies made an appearance. That was shocking, um, yeah. but quite wonderful and pleasant and, and dear to me. So I think that's the why we, we saw that. I also might want to say that I was hyped up on a lot of cold medicine when I saw this movie because my <laughs> sickness was starting. So I may have had a different experience of the Batman than you. Yeah, I really liked the multiverse Batman that they did. Uh, yeah. The first Batman that sort of like jumped over from the multiverse was Will Arnett's Lego Batman. Yeah, and I thought that that was a great the way. Lego Batman, though. Yeah, I was I was glad that they added some levity to the film in that way and really like lightened things up. It was good. Yeah, this is unlike anything <laughs> I've ever seen before. It's great. Uh, we kid, we kid, but this yeah. So this movie, I think texturally is very dark. I mean, it, it's it's dark aesthetically. It's dark thematically it is a dark movie about a dark character and i think um you know i i think some people sort of sort of make little jabs at that about batman and about dc in general but the reality is that just because a story is dark in nature doesn't mean that it ha- has no valid- validity or no emotion to it it's not right. it's not monotone or monochromatic necessarily i think one of the ways that DC Comics can differentiate itself from Marvel is by going a route that's a little bit darker in nature, but doing it in a way that's still, you know, we've seen them do darker in a bad way many times already with the DCEU, but doing it in a way that's dark, but not just for the sake of being dark, like dark because thematically, narratively, it makes sense and they're telling a story that is of a darker subject matter but still goes you know it's that's not it's not a means to an end it's 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 an end within itself or something like that i don't know right what I'm right right like sometimes when you see like uh like young actors try to be dramatic you're like oh look at yes. them they're, yes. they're just trying to be dramatic instead of playing the actual story that's in front of them and this very much is Here's the content. Here's the tale that we want to tell. It's a. It's not bright and sunny. Uh, yeah. It has no Teletubbies, but it is a very real grounded story uh, that could happen, and the, here's how it's going to go. And it's not people trying to be dreary like, oh, no, look at me. I'm so sad. It's like, let me show you how, uh, how I'm reacting to my feelings, not trying to play sadness yeah. or be sadness, but fight against it or react against it. Yeah, I think that's where DC needs to be. And I think where they where they have been at times during the DCEU is that first thing that you described. Yeah. And what I was trying to explain as I was stumbling over my words. No, you, you know, like it. really it comes across when you do it in a way that's just dark for the sake of being dark. It's like dark just because he's Batman, but that doesn't really fit the story. Then it just comes across as broody and melodramatic and stupid. Yes. Whereas you know, the reality is he's a dark character because he lives in Gotham City, the, you know, like one of the scariest, you know, dreariest, most, 
I mean, you can't see the light of day there. There's organized crime. It's just a seedy, disgusting place. And he lives there by himself with his butler because his parents were murdered in that city and he has nothing. He doesn't have their guidance and he misses them. Like that, that is a great basis for a dark story of, about a character who's dealing with some really heavy emotions. So um, Agreed. Agreed. I think that if that's I... where DC needs to get to. If I was also living in uh, Chicago, I mean, Gotham City, I think <laughs> that I would be the acting like this Bruce Wayne as well. I love that Gotham City, like, always is Chicago in film. Like, whenever <laughs> I saw the, the filming locations, one of them was Chicago, I was like, yes, that's right. Like, because there's just, there's <laughs> just, a, I mean, and all of the Nolan trilogy was very, very, very Chicago. And um, this feels Chicago in some ways too, but this this also had strong... New York city vibes and at times LA vibes. So it was just sort of that perfect metropolis kind of conglomerate of cities. Uh, but with the, with a really like dark underbelly and some seedy characters rolling around. So without any further ado, let's get into this movie and let's start as we always do with the acting performances. I'm going to kick us off with, and the Oscar goes to, which is the award that we give to the best actor in the film. And my pick this time is Robert Pattinson, who played Bruce Wayne and Batman in this film. And I will take this time to put my hand up and say that at the time that this casting was announced, I was one of the people who jeered it. I was. I was one of the people who kicked my feet and screamed about it. I think I even tweeted, like, not my Batman or something like that. I I threw a big, (laughs) giant, emotional, stupid, childlike fit. And here's the reason why. I had not seen Good Time. I had not seen High Life. I had not seen any of the films that Robert Pattinson had done post-Twilight because I wasn't really interested in his career trajectory after what I saw in Twilight. And that's on me. Uh, But now I have seen those films. I've seen The Lighthouse. I've seen what he is capable of as an actor. And I know that he, he brings just a really high level of detail, especially in a character study where he has a really long arc to build out. He's going to do it with a lot of care and he's going to do it in a way that's very thoughtful. Um, And now after seeing this movie and after seeing things that he's been in, I can, I can gladly say that he is a great Batman and um, is a great Bruce Wayne though. it, It is worth noting that this is not a Bruce Wayne movie. Really? It's, it is a movie about, Batman. It's called the Batman. I think that's sort of poetic because this is the Batman movie. He's really is more interested in being Batman. And even in the scenes where we see him as Bruce Wayne, he's not doing Bruce Wayne things. He's doing Batman things as Bruce Wayne because he needs to get either closer to something that he couldn't as Batman or he's required to do it because, you know, he's got responsibilities as Bruce Wayne, etc. But he is Batman. And I think that the story arc that is carved out in this film for Batman is lovely. I really do love it. And I think it goes, I think it starts at a great place. Um, they have Robert Pattinson doing some, um, some narration at the beginning of the movie, which I think is really effective in which he does really, really well. Um, and by the end of the movie, he's got a great arc built out, but what's really important about this story and this movie And what's really important about Robert Pattinson and why I think he did such a great job is that this is the first movie in what we suspect will be a three-movie trilogy about this character. And so he can't have a full and complete 
character arc by the end of this, but he does have to have made progress and the arc has to be self-contained and make sense within the film, which Robert Pattinson definitely did. At times, this performance is really understated and really nuanced. Um, it's all by design. He's He is intentionally, I think, playing some of his hands close to the vest with uh, with regard to this character because there's so much still to be done with this character in the future. But at no point do you feel like he's holding back. It's just that he is so obsessed, as Batman, so obsessed with solving this crime and so obsessed with being the hero that he feels like Gotham needs and deserves and, and the hero that he wants to be. And that takes him to some pretty interesting places. And I think that um, when he starts to learn more about his family, when this whole series of crimes turns to uh, you know him being a target and, and Alfred actually gets blown up accepting a package for Bruce Wayne because the Wayne family is tangled up in the Riddler's whole web, when he has to come face to face with the with the family story, with his past, with his legacy, etc., the emotion is very real and you can see the hurt, the anger, the sadness all at once in this very powerful scene that he has um, opposite Andy Serkis's uh, Alfred. And also all the way up to when he finally gets the Riddler in Arkham Asylum and he's face-to-face with him and he's asking him questions. You can see just that this is a very, this is a Batman who wants so badly to do good and is desperate to win and to fight. And ultimately he doesn't win because of the Batman that he is. And I'll get into that more later, but at each step of the path, Robert Pattinson is guarding the things that need to be guarded and unleashing the things that need to be unleashed out of his performance uh, in order to make this story arc work. So it's really effective and he does a really good job. And I will just say, and this is a little bit more superficial. He looks great in the suit. I think the cowl, um, that they've crafted for him, the way that it shapes his face, he, he really looks good. And and the way that they've done the eyes, he's able to be really expressive behind the mask with his eyes and, and with his with his jawline and the way that he forms his words and and kind of reacts uh, facially. So that's that's great too, because that's a big part of Batman. So Robert Pattinson, great job. Our leading man, he lives up to the billing. He does. He does. And that's why my Oscar also gets handed to Mr. Robert Pattinson. Congratulations, sir. Um, I wrote a bunch of notes down before I started uh, scrolling through some trivia on this movie. And the things that I wrote down, they all came true. So (laughs) it's kind of fun when you see when you see the behind the behind this uh, scene stuff is that what I wrote about Robert Pattinson's performance in this is that the film felt like his. Uh, It didn't feel like it could have been any, anyone else's role. It didn't feel like you could just drop um, Tom Cruise into this role uh, and just just have him take off with it. No, it, it was absolutely Robert Pattinson's. And two, two reasons why. Um, A, is because that when Matt Reeves wrote this script, he had Robert Pattinson in mind. And then when he screen tested and auditioned for it, he said, oh, thank goodness I wrote the right person in mind because this is absolutely what I wanted. Uh, And the second thing was, is that I think you can feel this throughout all of Robert Pattinson's films, is that when you see a movie with him in it, Scratch, Twilight, different big blockbuster franchise, you know, garbage. (laughs) But this and the other movies that really pay attention to their actors is that 
What Robert Pattinson does is he teams up so closely with the director and with the creative team to make sure that his performance is exactly in step with the creative vision. And this performance, due to COVID, uh, he actually had to have an earpiece to listen to Matt Reeves. And Matt Reeves was covered uh, from head to toe in PPE uh, and unable to like go really close to his his actors. Uh, and he had like big scuba masks on at certain times it said. It's crazy. Uh but he was literally in his ear um, giving him like soft coaching uh, before a scene would start or when the scene would begin, Robert Pattinson could actually hear Matt Reeves in his ears uh, reacting to his performance, uh, which was, he said, sometimes stressful and sometimes uh, encouraging. So that that blend between uh, the creative uh, collaboration and uh, having him in mind from the outset uh, of this, of the script of what this Batman would carry with him. Uh, I think that was just so cool. You don't get a lot of movies that the movie flows so perfectly with the performance of the main character. You have a, a movie with the great script, a great concept, great production value, great music, great actors, great performances. But there's something different specifically with Robert Pattinson, the way he blends his performance directly into the full creative view uh, that no one else that I've seen can do quite like him. So it's really special. Yeah, I like it, Kirk. It's a, it's a good call out. I mean, I think, yeah, it just all comes back to his him being a master of his craft really. And I think that we are, if, if I'm DC, I I'm a thrilled that we got um, Matt Reeves at, you know, in the prime of his career before he's really, you know, the apes movies were a big franchise that he was a part of, but very underrated in nature. I know we've talked about that before and now they've got him doing this trilogy they've given him basically carte blanche in terms of creativity as far as what they say. I mean, they really have said this is a filmmaker driven film. And then they've also got Robert Pattinson young, young enough to carry this franchise for as long as they need it to Zoe Kravitz, same exact thing. These are actors that have yet to have a massive, massive break, but this is, I mean, this is effectively it. So it's a really good spot for them to be. And I feel like, um, I am more certain than ever before that Robert Pattinson is definitely the right man for the job in this case. So that is, yes. that is exciting. Moving along to scene stealer. Um, I'm going to break the rules here and pick two. I've got two nope. scene stealers for this. Nope. Movie. You cannot, not tonight. <laughs> I'm doing it, Kirk. I'm doing it. I'm vengeance. Uh, <laughs> he did have a Batman voice too. I forgot to call that out. It wasn't quite, it wasn't quite the, uh, I'm not wearing hockey pads, you know, but it was, mm -hmm. it, it was definitely a voice. You know, I think, I think there weren't too many scenes where we saw extensive, like loud dialogue from him. Um, but I think the scene with the Riddler in Arkham, when he's locked away in there, you can definitely tell that he's, he's doing some vocal manipulations and, and I dug it. Um, mm -hmm. anyway, moving along to scene stealer. These are the people who, who had lesser roles but were managed to really put their stamp on the movie, and I've got two. The first one is clear-cut, uh, as clear as day, uh, Colin Farrell as the Penguin because this is a very transformative performance for him, and he's playing effectively like a New Jersey mob boss, right? Some guy who's in organized crime. This is a guy with gold teeth who gets his hands dirty, wears suits and hangs out in CD clubs and all of the stereotypical things that you think. But 
this performance, and maybe this is just me, but it really didn't come across as caricature to me, even though you could look at it and go, that's a very comic book character. It's like, yes, it was, but this was a very comic book movie. And I feel like within that, within the confines of that structure, he really carved out a very interesting character in a version of uh, the penguin. That's who Colin Farrell plays a version of the penguin that is different from anything we've ever seen before. And who really sort of works as his own thing. You know that he's bad because he's the penguin. And at the same time, you're like, I'm kind of interested in what this guy has to say, <laughs> you know, and he, he's funny at times. He's actually really funny a couple of times, particularly when they're doing the um, El Rata Alada uh, riddle. And he's like, it's La La Rata or, or whatever backwards. He's, he's doing the gendered um, version of it in Spanish. And he's like world's greatest detective. So, huh? you know, he's like doing a couple jokes about that. Um, so he's funny the, the car chase scene is fantastic, even if it's a bit uh, overlong. Uh, it's it's a bit indul- self-indulgent, but I'm all here for it. If if you're self-indulgent on car chases, like by all means, uh, I'm here for it. And, and he's very funny during that. So even though it's like on the surface, this very like caricature-y um, acting performance, it's so transformative. And he and Colin Farrell just totally puts a stamp on it and carves out a really nice character who we'll talk about more when we talk about what's to come after this movie. Um, but I, I really thought Colin Farrell did a great job. Second, Miss Zoe Kravitz, who is really um, starting to become a, a household name at this point. She's done some amazing things. She's had some amazing performances. But this performance as Selena Kyle, Catwoman, is really great because she is the perfect um, foil in a way to Batman because she is in a similar spot where she's like this sort of anti-hero host unto herself, uh, but she really wears her emotions on her sleeve and she's going through some big emotional things with her roommate who you know goes missing and then is found dead, her father who is, you know, he's Salvatore Marone. And so he's, you know, the head of this huge crime family and is responsible for the death of her, uh, her roommate and, and all these things. So she's going through these big emotional things and just totally wearing it on her sleeve the whole time. You can see all of the emotion behind her eyes. You can see it in the way that she reacts and engages. And Batman is so opposite of her and he's so intrigued by her and she's just, you know, playing into it. She's intrigued by him because they're so different and the way that they interact, she has to drive most of those interactions because Batman is a man, a few words. He's really all business and she sort of jokes around with him, calling him vengeance all the time and, you know, trying to get under his skin and she goes about her business in a very different way, but it just really brings a nice dynamic. It's, it's, you know, one of the things I talked about in the episode before we got, uh, before we got into the actual review, whenever I said, what do you want from this movie? One of the things I said I wanted was good cat and bat content. And this was sublime. And I think that it's mostly because Zoe Kravitz is a perfect Selena Kyle and did an incredible job with this role. So great job by her and Colin Farrell. I picked two. It's against the rules, but here we are. 
Well, uh, I'll never forgive you. That's all. <laughs> that's fair. That's, that's, actually, that's actually fair, Kirk. I mean, I, I never tell you these things whenever I go off script mm-hmm. like this, so you just kind of have to roll with it, and you, you really have no defense to it. It's just... Yeah. I mean, I think I've broken that rule like 18 times, but I will <laughs> not be. allow you to. It's, it's that simple. My scene stealer goes to Mr. Irish Colin Farrell. He's from Dublin. Yeah, he is. One of your face. Yes. This man, anyone from Ireland, obviously, uh, wins in my book. I think I would give the highest award to the worst actor in any Irish movie. So, luckily, in this particular sense, Colin Farrell is a master. He's a master. Um, As I've spoken before, Colin Farrell had a few missteps early on in his career, and he has more than enough made up for it. I think that that's like his his penance. penance. He is just constantly trying to make sure that no one sees him as a terrible actor again. So his choices in roles are very specific. They're very calculated. It's almost as if he uh, takes the script home and tries it out and says, all right, I'll do that, <laughs> or turns it down. That's how I imagine Colin Farrell takes on roles, and I, I hope he did with this one. I mean... This is, I mean, definitive of transformative. I mean, you first have the prosthetics, duh. doesn't look like him at all. But you have to be more than just prosthetics because any actor can put on a mask and attempt to pretend to be something that they're not. But in this, you have every mannerism, every movement, uh, his a complete vocalization, dialect overhaul. Colin Farrell... I just want to be near you to just watch your process because it's absolutely incredible. It is actually Academy Award uh, nominate. I can't think of the the conjugations. He should be nominated at the actual Oscars for best supporting <laughs> when this rolls around because it, it really was a sight to see um, some some nuances that hopefully people caught. I mean, he is the Penguin uh, at a point when he gets left by the Batman and by uh, Captain Gordon uh, at this abandoned kind of building that they all keep meeting at. He is chained around his hands and his feet and he does a Penguin waddle but not super ridiculous. He does it as if, yeah, I'm chained up, but I I can't move. There are so many, there's so much evil in him that's just innate that you're like ready to uncover because it's not just Danny DeVito, Batman in Tim Burton's world was just an innately psychotic character. In this one, you're like, who hurt you? What caused you to be this way, Colin Farrell? I want to know your history. Tell me it. And layering that, layering all of that together it's just that simple that colin farrell takes the win on my books love it yeah and uh we'll talk about it more but he does have a series coming up that's been officially greenlit uh it's been in talks for a while since before this obviously well before this movie was released but there is a series coming to hbo max um not sure i mean i, I assume matt reeves will operate as the showrunner we'll sort of figure out as that goes on but it will star colin farrell and it will center around the penguin so we'll get into that a little bit more later. But let's move into the production. Talk about Showstopper and then Director Shoes. So Showstopper is the thing about the movie. It can be a narrative tool. It can be a visual tool. It can be really anything that uh, really sold it for us and, and made the biggest impact. So I'll kick us off here with Showstopper. My Showstopper is the visual storytelling because a lot of times um, with comic book films, there is not... And, and I want to I want to say this delicately because I love I love comic book movies and I don't agree with comments made by certain 
older directors who have made lots of nasty comments about Marvel movies in particular. But there is an element of cinematic magic and storytelling in specific to the medium of film that is sometimes missing from comic book movies because they have so much, um, you know, they have so much character storytelling with the colors of the characters, their whole um, shticks and the, you know, the CGI and effects and battles that they do that a lot of times it lacks some of the artistic storytelling and visual storytelling that you see in other pieces of cinema. And this movie was not like that. This movie had its own aesthetic and it was very consistent and very carved out and very iconic um, in nature. And they do this great thing with visual storytelling specific to, well, specific to the world of Gotham City and how things work within Gotham City, but also specific to the Batman. And most of that storytelling is done with this theme you might have, you know, assumed this light versus dark. There's this whole thing about light versus dark in the opening narration. We hear um, the Batman talking about, you know, how he strikes fear in the heart of the criminals all over the all over the city. They see the signal, and when they do, they they wonder if he's in the shadows. But he says, "I am the shadows," and so that sort of leads us down this path where okay, Batman is the shadow. So what does that mean? Throughout the whole movie, we see him as a silhouette many times. He's, he's heavily backlit and all you can see is his silhouette. But as the movie goes on, there's this theme that emerges of light, meaning a couple of different things. Some things that it traditionally means in, in most uh, narrative storytelling, like truth and hope and things like that. And so there's this really nice arc where, you know, Batman calls himself vengeance at the beginning of the movie. Whenever somebody asks him who he is, he says, I'm vengeance, and then pr- proceeds to beat the crap out of a whole herd of, uh, you know, gangbangers or whatever. And then, uh, you know, he's called vengeance by Zoe Kravitz the whole time, and the Riddler calls him the Batman, and there's this whole name thing. But at the end, he steps out of the shadow. He chooses to go save the mayor elect. And when he does so, he lights a flare right there to bring himself into the light and to show himself. And then at the end, there's this very iconic scene of him helping someone out of the now flooded Gotham city. And he's in the light And the final shot we get of him in the movie is the light on his face. It's daylight. You can see him and he's just looking up, um, at the helicopters as they take people away to get medical attention. And so there's this whole beautiful thing about him transitioning from being vengeance and lurking in the shadows and then becoming light. And really the centerpiece of that and, and the catalyst for him making that transformation is the Riddler. And the Riddler has this whole thing about light too. And one of the riddles is uh, you know, to bring the Rata Alada into the light so that you can see uh, the truth and Batman does so, uh, and he ends up getting killed. It's uh, it's Carmine Falcone ends up getting killed. He's he's the rat on the Salvatore Moroni uh, crime situation, but he brings him into light and he gets killed. And when he finally comes face to face with the Riddler, he he realizes that the Riddler this whole time is thinking they're working together. He's like, we're you and me, we're the exact same. And that's when Batman realizes that if I want to be the hero that I need to be, uh, I 
have to step out of the shadows. I have to be a symbol. And that's when he makes the full transition, lights the flare, and becomes the hero. After he's lost, he actually loses to the Riddler in this movie. And and that combined with the visual storytelling that goes throughout, and there are, t- there are tons, tons, tons of things that I haven't mentioned. But um, those are the main things that help seal it but that combined with the riddler you know him losing to the riddler and then the theme of him transitioning you know into this figure of hope and this the symbol of of justice and of truth uh help him to sort of leave behind the moniker of vengeance and become something more than that so it's it's really high high quality storytelling especially without a lot of dialogue that explicitly states that and it's done really really well one might say that when he is backlit and he is standing in front of the light, mm-hmm. that he is standing in the way Ooh. of justice. Oh, he's definitely standing in the way of the truth. Yeah. That's, I'll see myself out. That's good, Kirk. That's rich. I have nothing better to say than that moment <laughs> in this podcast. That'll be the end for me. Okay, Kirk, but for real, what's your showstopper? My showstopper? Masks. Quite literally, quite literally, masks. Um, there is a, a fantastic um, element, billions of elements thrown into this that are, are carefully uh, monitored in the masks that we wear. Uh, we have a very Batman movie, as Cam talked about at the top of this episode, versus a a very heavy Bruce Wayne movie. And I love the the duality of the the battle of which one he thinks he is. Um, is he really more akin to? The, the Batman personality, was that always who he was supposed to be? Or is he really Bruce Wayne? What is he? In this movie, it would venture to say that he is the Batman. Uh, we have uh, the Penguin, obviously, and all these prosthetics. Uh, very literally, he wears no mask, but what is he hiding? Why, why is he so out there and so in your face uh, and... And just this facade of of richness and gluttony and and glory of being at the top of the of the mob syndicate. What is he hiding with his mask? What what he's showing us versus what we're not seeing? We have the Riddler who's never worn a mask before, is masked for ninety percent of his performance, which is very difficult in my book. And I'll tell you about that a little bit in uh, in just in just a little bit after this, but. He, he wears a mask, he has all of these these tricks, these riddles to unveil, and then he finally does it. Uh, Catwoman, uh, we see Zoe Kravitz wearing not only a mask, her mask is very thin and very light. It's almost like she cut a sock and put it over her head. It covers very little of her face, and you'd be able to pick her out from a lineup immediately. <laughs> but she also wears different get-ups with different wigs and different wardrobe that just give her this armor, kind of. Uh, that's what her what her masking does to herself. Uh, and then she just, like, destroys giant uh, giant men who've been in the mob syndicate for a very long time. So the, the, the theme of masks, the element of masks, is was so well done and well played throughout every single character that we came across. And even in the finale, when the 507 Riddler followers come into the fold, they are all masked up just like the Riddler. They're, that that's who their their leader is they're thinking this is the way this is how we fight back this is how we take our own form of justice uh the twisted justice that they roped uh, batman into uh into the into their web right this 
the whole concept of masks uh, of of who we think we are versus who we actually are versus who we want to be those are so well played in all three different roads or avenues if you will throughout the entire film and uh there's there's no like there's no break there's no like uh, act one is everyone's kind of on this path act two everyone's on this path and act three everyone's on this path they're all interwoven because they're all on different journeys and that's what makes the masking of each character so fascinating to watch through this three-hour ride of a movie yeah it's a that's a great point and and i love that theme as well i think there's this whole thing with balance there too um, you know, we talk about light and dark in the end. It's, it's really not about being fully in the, sh- fully the shadows or fully the light. He has to strike a balance and it's the same with the mask too, right? Like I think when Batman sees those Riddler followers and he sees the Riddler and how they're all covering their face, he has this moment of I'm no better than them. You know, we're right. all doing the same thing. And these people could see me as one of them, just another masked psycho out there who is he doing good? Is he doing I mean, whatever he's doing, he's just inflicting his own sense of justice in the world with no oversight. And so I think he, at that moment, realizes, do I need to not be the Batman? No, but I might need to be the Batman and Bruce Wayne. You know, he has that conversation with um, the mayoral candidate and and who ends up becoming the mayor-elect for Gotham City. And she's talking about, hey, your family used to be really philanthropic, but you haven't done that. Uh, in a long time and I know you've got money to spend and I can help you with that and I think by him saving her he's showing okay I know now that in order to be the hero for this city I have to be the hero as the Batman and as Bruce Wayne as the mask and you know the Batman is actually not his mask and Bruce Wayne is his is his mask so he has to put on that mask Um, so it's yeah it's very interesting it's really good theming really good thematic work and, and storytelling there so good call all right, let's move into director's shoes. My director's shoes is very simple. I think, in short, I would just call it trust your audience. I think there were two main things about this movie that felt out of place and that took away from it a little bit. One is um, the mystery ends up being a little overstated. That you can put the pieces together in your head to figure out that Carmine Falcone was behind the Salvatore Marone, that he was the rot, the rat, you know, the rata alada. You can sort of figure that out as things go along. Um, but they go as far as to have this big long scene with, with uh, Alfred and Bruce in the hospital uh, to explicitly say that, Oh, it's Carmine Falcone. Uh, you know, a, a flying, you know, a rat with wings or something can be a falcon too. And they have this whole revelation. But by that point, most of the people in the audience, I would have to assume, have figured this out. And we certainly know, feel like Bruce Wayne and Batman, the world's greatest detective, should have figured it out. So whenever they go that far and they have this big long scene, and that scene has some rewarding qualities to it, but the fact that they have to go as far as to explicitly state, oh, it's, you know, it's Carmine Falcone. Uh, it, it felt a little heavy-handed to to me. And, and it's not much. It doesn't take that much away from it. But it's like, man, it would have been cool if 
we just saw Batman go get Carmine Falcone. He didn't say anything about it, but he figured it out in his head at the same time that we did because there is a moment where everybody sort of goes, click, the puzzle pieces snap together, and you go, okay, he's the rat. Um, and, and it would have been nice to see them just commit to that and not feel like they had to go further to sort of baby step and, and, and spoon feed us the actual answer because by that point, you're just you're ready to go. Um, the other part is is the Joker. <laughs> they do this scene in Arkham with the Riddler where they heavily tease the Joker. They sh- they show a guy, he laughs hysterically. He he talks about being a clown and and all of these things, and it's like very obviously the Joker. But in the scheme of the movie, it feels very out of place. It's the one scene in the whole movie that to me um, feels off. It doesn't feel. Right. It almost feels like, and maybe this is me just speculating, and that's why I felt this way. It almost feels like Warner Bros. doing classic Warner Bros. things and being like, you need to tease the Joker. Batman fans are going to want the Joker, and you need to tease it. And I didn't want them to tease anything. I didn't want them to tease anything about a sequel or anything. I wanted them to lead us up to a sequel, but not tell us what's going to be in that movie at all. And it didn't need it. It just didn't need that scene and frankly I know you have to have the Joker at some point in the Batman trilogy but like we don't need to see him in this movie we just don't and and I felt like that was the one thing that really it was the only thing actually in the movie that I went that doesn't fit that's a bummer and while as a Batman fan I'm excited about the Joker potentially I didn't want that scene in this movie so it it took away from it. It was the one part that took away from the movie, and I was like almost angry about it when it happened because I was like, "Ah, you're doing so great." Um, but we'll we'll see how much of an effect it had when I give my final thoughts and scores. But those are the two things: trust your audience, trust that a we can figure out the mystery on ourselves with the clues that you've given us, and we can figure it out without Batman having to explicitly state who it is. B have the confidence to finish the movie without showing the Joker and just knowing that everyone will be okay as long as you tell a good story with good Batman content and and wrap it up nicely. We don't need to see the Joker. Those are the two things that could have been done better. Mm-hmm. Word on the street is that Cam's score dropped five full kernels because of that Joker <laughs> scene. <laughs> wow. You need to check your sources, Kirk. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. My director's shoes. Absolutely this I have three absolutely the back and forth hunt for who killed my father um, yeah. and my mother uh, absolutely that that scene it, w- it was when you think about it from a script perspective you get it right because you have Batman hunting down uh, his own his own journey, his own mission, his own case. And then you have Bruce Wayne going on his own case. And so you want it to seem significant enough. You want it to seem that he is doing enough and doing detective work and, and following the clues and putting them together. But you just didn't have to, you didn't have to, uh, the, the, the strength of it was already there and we didn't need the extra bam uh, explanation on the top of the head. So very frustrating. That whole that whole sequ- sec- sequence was very, very long, in my opinion. Way stretched out, way overplayed, way too on the nose. 
the second thing, there is a lot of whisper talking, a lot of whisper talking in this movie. If there's one thing that I can't stand is if an entire movie is mostly whisper talking. Uh, if you saw Spencer uh, from this from this series, this season of film uh, f- uh, films with uh, uh, Kristen Stewart, if you've seen that same director, I can't think of his name, but he also directed Jackie whisper talking, whisper talking, whisper talking. It didn't distract me too much, but at times I was like, you know, I mean, they don't have to be like jumping up and down. There's no reason that they would need to be. But talking at a normal level is okay and adequate, even with the tone of this movie. The whisper talking was too much. uh, It was just a little too much for me at times in this movie. And probably my biggest detractor of this film, my third item that I have brought to the table is... The Riddler being masked the uh, for so long of his performance. The casting of Paul Dano, who strikes fear uh, into millions of people's lives if you've seen <laughs> him in any movie, any movie whatsoever. Um, even though he carries so much of that in his eyes, they are kind of visible through his mask but not really you've got this leather mask you've got the the big giant glasses that you cannot see him which is a fear tactic obviously but when you cast paul dano you have to use paul dano's face because that is what terrifies people that face has haunted an entire generation take that away you lose your edge uh, or some of it at least his vocal performance still fantastic his uh, his his movement still creepy as as I'll get out, but you lose Paul Dano's face, you lose the fear a little bit from my end. Sorry, Matt Reeves. All right, yeah. I mean, I think that there's it, it. It's it's interesting. This you know, it's a subjective form too. You know, like fear. There are some real fear moments in this movie, and some real some real elements of a thriller horror movie that make your skin crawl and make, I mean, this is, you know, in a lot of ways it's akin to a a David Fincher movie or, or really even something that's more thrillery than that, than that, you know, something with like actual slasher type horror elements and maintaining that is a difficult thing to do, especially in a movie that has other stuff going on. That's more actiony. Um, and, and superhero-y. I'm going to use all the fake adjectives, mm, yeah. <laughs> you know, but <laughs> they, uh, it's, it's a hard thing to do. And I think that if you, if you lose it, it does kill some of the effects. So I think it just, you know, sort of depends. So good, good call outs, but let's get into final thoughts and scores and figure out where we stand on the Batman. As I get into this, I, I want to say a few things out front. First of all, if you haven't picked up on it by now, I'm a massive Batman fan. I love this character. This was my dad's favorite superhero. Of, of course, he was more with the bang, pow, slam Batman and the like, holy flying cheese curds Batman. You know, he like he likes the the like uh, Adam West. Yeah, the Adam West, the more campy type, like blue and gray and underwear pulled up to here type of Batman. And that's that's all fine and well, but. You know, my dad, early on, I had all these different favorite superheroes, and I loved the, the ones that had the most insane powers in, in the world. And I asked my dad who his favorite superhero was, and he told me Batman. And I was like, Batman? He doesn't have any powers. And my dad was like, exactly. And it 
<laughs> my head exploded. I was like, <laughs> oh, snap, this is so cool. And from that day on, I, I loved this character. And then, you know, with my cousin Zach reading all the, the, the comics from Frank Miller and Jeff Loeb, late 90s, early 2000s, uh, falling in love with this darker version, uh, this more... Uh, cynical and, and realistic sort of version of, of Batman. I just fell more in love with this character. And then the Chris Nolan movies. I mean, I am all about Batman and the way that this movie is crafted. It is like someone catered it specifically to me. I mean, it's like, it's laughable how, how much this movie is catered to me. Like as we walked in, to our fan first screening. They gave us a reprinting of the first issue of the long Halloween comic um, by Jeff Loeb and Tim, Tim sale. And I'm like, that's, you know, that, <laughs> that's exactly my experience with Batman. Those are my guys right there. And so, you know, you add in the fact that the movie is directed by Matt Reeves. One of my favorite directors has a cast of people. I love from, Jeffrey Wright, Andy Serkis, uh, Colin Farrell, Robert Pattinson, Zoe Kravitz. I mean, all these incredible cast members. A score written by the incomparable Michael Giacchino uh, that is iconic and, and, and sweeping and breathtaking and thematically so rich as well um, because it does the whole like dun, 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 which is like very dark and like gives you very <laughs> um, sinister sorts of vibes. But the whole thing sort of goes up chromatically and gives you this like tinge of hope, which is sort of what this whole movie is all about in a way. So it's really beautifully done. Um, and then you add in something in the way Nirvana, like the whole thing is so um, it's grunge and it's, and it's Gotham and it's, it's just Batman. It's, it's Batman as I know Batman. And, and so for that reason, I, absolutely loved it. And, and, and is it a perfect film? Certainly not. I mean, Kirk and I both just pointed out a few things that we didn't like about it. Even, even beyond those things, I would say the movie is definitely, um, a little self-indulgent at times. So taking scenes that could have been shorter and making them longer, a uh, car chase scene could have been shorter, making it longer, uh, et cetera. But even the things that they were self-indulgent on, I'm like, yeah, I could watch this all day long. Like, Penguin and Batman in a car chase scene, please. I would watch three hours of this. I would watch, you know, endless amounts of dialogue between Alfred and and this Bruce Wayne just to be in that world. Um, so even the parts that are a little self-indulgent, I, I find myself loving. And the fact that this is just a really thoughtful, masterful, um, emotional crafting of Batman for the silver screen, it just makes it a really really, really good product as far as I'm concerned. And I think it will, I think it will lack a little bit in terms of mass appeal because I think, I think so to be in love with this movie, you have to be in love with Batman. I think you can absolutely think this is a great movie without loving Batman. But I think if you're not super bought into Batman, you will go, no, this is not for me because, because it is just so Gotham and so Batman and like, so like peak of all of those different elements and things. So that if you're not really a fan of that world, it's just not really going to hit in the same way that like, if you didn't like Batman and you saw Batman begins, you might go, Hey, this is an interesting take because it just generally is more catered towards mass appeal. I think this one is, this one does not fall into that boat, but 
I was glad to see that it did really well in the box office because I really think that this is a great movie. I'm giving it an incredibly high score. Um, actually, I think I, I gave Joker a higher score, and, and my main reason for that, I always sort of <laughs> challenge my convictions on my Joker score because I gave it an incredibly high score. But what I, what I come back to always with the Joker is it was so... It was so consistent and fearless in its approach and what it was trying to do. And it didn't matter that it left open questions and things like that. It just did exactly what it wanted to do. Um, and at sometimes that was derivative and, and, and reminiscent of other directors and things like that. But it was just so consistent. And I, I loved that. But And different. This movie is like that, but I can't give it as high of a score. I'm giving it, though, a 9.6 out of 10. Um I'm not going to go down the path of this is the best Batman movie ever, or this is better than the dark Knight or whatever. I'm not going to do that because I don't, I don't think it's, well, maybe it is a fair comp comparison, but I just don't want to get into that battle because I think that these movies couldn't have happened without the Chris Nolan movies, as I've said before. And I think that the Chris Nolan movies are such a milestone in the history of film and, and comic book film in general that, those will always be considered great, no matter what heights and what extent this uh, movies, this series receives critical accolades. It will still, you know, Chris Nolan's franchise will always have a place in in in, in history and of significance. So I'm not going to get into that conversation, but it's a really, really, really good movie and an excellent, near perfect Batman movie for me. So 9.6 out of 10 for the Batman. 9.6 kernels. And you know what, ladies and gentlemen, we'll never give you the comparison. We'll never give it to you because I think when you start to compare these, then you diminish what each of the Batman franchises gave you 1, at the time that they came out. Absolutely. Uh, it's just like, you know, comparing Spider-Man. And then guess what? Everyone's like, oh, yeah, Andrew Garfield was wonderful as Spider-Man. The people who were the haters on that entire series. It is, it is series. dude. It's toxic. 1,000%. It's not worth it unless you have a flat out failure, absolute garbage failure, Green Lantern, then you should not have to compare it to anything else. If Green Lantern ever gets rebooted, that will be a forgiveness <laughs> path, right? Yeah, um, yes. If Aquaman ever gets rebooted, it will be a forgiveness oh. path. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <I said. laughs> oh, let's talk about my score before the listeners uh, come through the screen and through their ears. I would say that I am a Batman fan. Um, I am heavily in love with rewatching the uh, 90s animated series. I've started to rewatch it to see if my son oh, yes. is able to watch that yet. He's eight. It's Y7, but there's lots of guns in it, you know, and I, in the world of gun violence today, I just want to make sure that he's a, he's understanding of what's going on. Uh, so I really, really am, am, am uh, enjoying that rewatch. I'm really, really, at the same time, I'm rewatching Batman Beyond for the hundredth time. I think that this character is so fun to be sad with in the craziest way uh -huh. because you just think, what's one of the worst things that can happen to a kid? Oh, his parents are taken away, right? Not taken away, murdered in front of him. And so you you put yourselves in his shoes. You're like, what would you do? You have an endless amount of money. You have an endless amount of time and resources. Your parents are gone. How do you react? You, you would like to think that you would react like Bruce Wayne does. 
we love to be sad with him. So to go on this three hour journey of his sadness and figuring out those feelings with him, it's an incredibly fantastic concept. Uh, this is, I, I love, I love that, that Cam said like, this is the, not the definitive Batman movie, but the definitive Gotham movie for sure. We get engrossed in it because you have to think this is a younger Batman, right? All the other Batmen were in their late 30s and mostly early 40s. Well, Gotham had long since fallen. Uh, the the evil uh, bad guys at play were already defined. They'd already done all their crimes and they were also in their 50s or 60s even. Arnold Schwarzenegger, Mr. Freeze. What I'd like to get at this is we're seeing the, the the fall of a city because people are still trying so hard to make it work, but they know it's a, it's an endless cause there in Gotham City. So that's why the darkness as its own character, as its own momentum of trying to save something has more stakes in this movie, which is also so fascinating. Um, this, because of my director's shoes, they were... Those three things, not really the whispering, but definitely the take on the Riddler, the costuming choice with him, and the back and forth of that one section that went on way too long, um, I had to deduct accordingly. Still gets a really high score, but those moments were really distracting, and I think that if that mask would have come off of Paul Dano earlier, that I think that this movie would have been even more terrifying. So for today and for always and immortalized in this podcast, my score for the Batman 8.5 out of 10 kernels. Nice. Yeah. What I I love the point that you made and we're going to get into it actually right now about what's next, you know, talking about, you're talking about the Batmans that we've seen um, have been older and Gotham has been what it is, you know, And, and, and really like even given that, in the by the time we get to the end of the Chris Nolan trilogy, we're still far from comic book level Batman. You know, like there's no, there there's not like tons of super villains all over the place. There's not like, I don't know. There's not Batman and Robin. There's not you know Catwoman is there, but she's not like really. She barely wears a Catwoman outfit. Like the whole thing. It, that's by the end of the series. You know, at the beginning of the series, we hardly really see Batman that much in Batman Begins. And mm-hmm. then, you know, it goes from there. But this series is really enticing because we got so much Batman and so much Catwoman. And they're they're on a trajectory that will take us farther, really, than Batman has ever gone in modern film outside of the... The 90s series, which I think we can all agree went too far. <laughs> you know, some of those movies, Batman and Robin, namely. Uh, and at times, at times, Batman Forever and the like. But this gives us a chance to really, at the end of this trilogy, have a lot of different things up in the air. And, and maybe it's maybe it's not a trilogy. Maybe it's four or five films. Maybe they do a Bond type ten. thing. I don't know. They could go... They do ten films. They could go far with it. But, you know, they've already planted seeds for Penguin, Joker, the Riddler is still out there. You know, he's locked in Arkham, Catwoman. Um, we've got the Falcone and Marone uh, crime families, like so much, and there's still so far to go. Um, it's exciting. So let's talk about what's next for this series. So let's let's start with the, you know, the things that you always think about after watching a big franchise movie. First of all, and I'm going to share my screen here, um, there was an after credit scene, and 
in that scene, what pops up, it, you can't even really call it an after credit scene. It's like 30 seconds long. You get the, the sort of like, um, what do they call that when you're, when you have like, Oh, command can command center or something like that on your computer CM, open CMD. Yeah. Where you can like uh. enter computer commands, like backend commands into your computer. Yes. It's got that with the question mark blinking. And then it just says goodbye. And right before the screen goes dark, it flashes a website. And that website is, uh, Rata, Alada.com, which was the website that, um, which Rata Alada was what they was p- part of the riddle. It was basically Spanish for a rat with wings. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to enter that right now. If you're on YouTube, you can see us, Whoa. you can see us doing it. So here it goes. It says tracing. There's the question mark <sighs> trace route. So you've got this whole like um, control center type thing popping up here with a bunch of different commands. And if you look really hard, you can see Jim Carrey. <laughs> That's <laughs> not true. If you're listening to the podcast, Kirk just lied. Kirk just lied hard. Then it says, click for reward, loading 91%. And if you click it, you get this cipher. Um, so <laughs> Kirk and I, obviously, um, I don't even know. Can you even see the cipher right now? I know you can just see click for reward. So anyway, I'll uh, let me share the other tab with the cipher on it. One second doing this live. I feel like I'm at work. Like, all right, guys, I'm going to share my screen real quick. (laughs) Can you go back a couple of slides where you expressed? (laughs) Yeah. So you can't really see it that much here, but it's a cipher. Kirk and I were not smart enough, or maybe we were smart because we decided to let somebody smarter figure this out. Uh, Basically what this has been figured out to say, and we assume this is from the Riddler. It reads, you think I'm finished, but perhaps you don't know the full truth. Every ending is a new beginning. Something is coming. That's what it says. So very vague, very, very ambiguous. But as with all Batman villains, Batman does not kill. He doesn't kill in this movie. He doesn't, you know, he he really doesn't kill anybody in this movie. In the old Batman trilogy, you could argue that certain people died at the hand of Batman, a.k.a. Harvey Dent, Um you know, uh, there are others who indirectly, yeah, indirectly die at the hands of Batman and things like that. But Batman really doesn't kill anybody in this film. So with that being the case, the Riddler is locked up in Arkham Asylum. But as we all know, uh, that's far from a sure thing. So my first question to you, Kirk, is how big of a role does the Riddler play going forward in this trilogy? Do you think it's a situation where they just sort of build up to this big, like, all the baddies get released from Arkham and he has to defeat all of them type thing? Or do you think that he will play a role in each subsequent film? I think he plays a role in each film. Uh, I think that he would play, play some sort of like a, like a mentor or you see him crafting his next big break, or he had yet even another big plan after the explosions that were going off when he was in prison, that there is still something up his sleeve. Uh, So in the second one, it's dialed down. You don't get enough of him, but you still get forward motion with him. And then I think he returns. I think he is the biggest bad. I think potentially that Joker might be in number two. And I think Riddler comes back with, uh, with at least one other villain in the third one, whoever that may be. Yeah. I think, I think it's, it'll be interesting. So the other thing to layer on top of this is that there will be at least 
two spinoff series that are coming to HBO Max. One is the Penguin series, and the other one was previously described as a Gotham City Police Department uh, series that ha- that Matt Reeves has said recently has sort of evolved more into an Arkham Asylum uh, series. So if that's the case, you have to figure Riddler is definitely factoring into that series and will certainly play a role in that and how it plays into the other films. But, you know, I'm not certain that... Um, who's going to be the villain in the next movie. But I agree with you that I think that Riddler will have some role. You know how like Scarecrow kind of had a role yes. in like every subsequent Batman movie. I think that these guys don't go away and, and they, they matter. <laughs> the way, the way Killian Murphy just kept showing up, you're like, Oh, oh it's him. He's back. Yeah. Like, dude, when he's, it was always so exciting. Yeah. When he is uh, convening the courts of the Gotham city people <laughs> yes. uh, in the third one, it's a, it's a big time Leo DiCaprio uh, meme <laughs> moment where you're like, Oh, Oh, <laughs> so that's pretty great. Let's talk about the Joker. Um, so without a doubt, this this Gotham, you know, this Arkham, what do they call him? Unnamed Arkham prisoner or something like that. Yes. Uh, which we'll get into it. But whoever this person is, is certainly the Joker. Now, here is the thing about the Joker. The heavy speculation is that it's Barry Keown, who is in Eternals, the Green Knight, Lots of other things. Look him up. You've seen him. He, he's been around. And at face value, you go, that's a darn good Joker casting. But it's not clear if it's him, Kirk. It's not clear if Barry Keown is actually the Joker. They are certainly throwing as much smoke as possible to dispel the rumors that he is the Joker following this movie. So, um, for example... Matt Reeves has basically said that, yes, uh, Barry Keown filmed scenes as a proto-Joker type of character where they were sort of testing things out, but that they're doing this to sort of throw people off the scent of who the real Joker is. And there was some some rumors, I think, about him playing a Gotham City Police Department officer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there were leaked set photos and things like that. So there's certainly a lot of smoke going here. So my questions to you, Kirk, well, really my main question is, was that Barry Keown that we saw in the movie as Joker? And do you think he is the Joker? Hmm, I think it was Harry Styles. That's my first oh, guess. My. That would be a choice. Or, or Steve from Blue's Clues. Those are the first people Ooh. that come to mind. Steve from Blue's Clues um, would make a pretty good Riddler, honestly. He would because he's all about clues. It would be the, yes. the absolute biggest twist. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> that is the answer to the riddle. Oh, oh, at the climax of the third film. I I, I kind of do think it is Barry. I really do. I'm, I'm biting on that because I've seen him in a number of films. Yeah. And granted, I could only see his forehead, eyes, and kind of the illusion of uh, of some sharp teeth almost like a cheshire cat situation going on uh in that in that scene in the prison i'm i'm buying it i'm buying it that it's him yeah so whoever it is 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 wearing heavy prosthetics no matter what um that's a given and you know i'm not at the point that you're at where i think joker is the villain in the next movie i think that it's possible 
we get a taste of Joker here, a taste of Joker in this Arkham series, maybe a taste of Joker in this uh, Penguin series. Matt Reeves, in fact, said that Batman has already crossed paths with this Joker, um, mm. you know, off screen prior to us being clued in in his first year of crime fighting. And that's, I guess, why he's in Arkham Asylum. Um, so this is also probably not a full-fledged Joker yet, if that's the case, too. So it's very interesting. I think they really want us to believe it's Barry Keown. Um, either that or they're doing a really bad job <laughs> at hiding it because why credit him and why have him show up to the premiere and why credit him as unseen slash unnamed Arkham prisoner or something like that and then, you know, allow the all of this stuff to swirl. I, I really think that they want us to think it's him and, and that could be just because they're trying to test it out or because it really will be him. I don't really know. Um, or they're trying to bait and switch us, but I don't know where mm-hmm. I'm leaning yet, Kirk. I really, I really can't decide, but I know that he's going to be involved in some capacity. Right. Yeah. Whether, whether it is full blown or not. I mean, there's, you know, there are enough, um, villains out there of, of Batman, but we really think about, you know, just three and there's so many more. I mean, I pulled up a list here. We've got man bat would be fa- fascinating um, to come on here. Harley Quinn could very well make her own appearance, not Margot Robbie or maybe Margot Robbie coming into the fold. Um, we've got, uh, there's the option of having dead shot appear. That was, if it was the Ben Affleck Batman, right? Or Deathstroke. Yeah, mm-hmm. Deathstroke. Oh, was going to be Deathstroke oh, was going to be the, was going to be uh, the Frank Manginello or what? How's his name? Oh yeah, was? that guy. But here's who I would like to see. I would like to see the calculator, the villain, the calculator. Nice. Uh, Calendar Man, the Condiment King, the Condiment King, Clayface Two or Clayface Three, but not Clayface One. I don't want to oh, see. Okay, Clayface you don't want to see Clayface One. Sure. <laughs> uh, there's also Clayface Four and Five. <laughs> <laughs> listen man oh my gosh the there's also um the electrocutioner yes the electrocutioner uh-huh that's good and oh but what was the one this was fascinating rat catcher um actually was a prominent uh prominent enough character in batman's uh path that crossed yeah. uh to speak in perfect english that we saw in the new suicide squad film uh so it's something about the the that'd be pretty fun to see the rat catcher come across over here and, and battle it out. Could be. We'll see. Um, I, I, I mean, my picks, one would be hush. One mm-hmm. would be potentially Mr. Freeze potentially. Unfortunately, I don't think they can do Bane because Bane has been done. Right. Um, and I don't know that there's a huge appetite for Bane to be honest. Uh, and I feel the same way about Two-Face. I think there is an appetite for Two-Face, but I just don't know if you can do that. But there are certain villains that you can't really do, I feel like, in the confines of this world. Like, I feel like Poison Ivy would be hard to pull off. I feel like um, Clayface, obviously, would be very difficult to pull off. Mm-hmm. And there are a few villains that I think are just a, a little less grounded that will be harder to pull off. But, um, yeah, I'm not convinced that it's going to be the Joker in the next movie. And, and I don't really... I don't really view Deathstroke as like a Batman villain per se. Like it, it's almost like 
it's almost like Kingpin with Spider-Man. You know, like I don't always view that like, can he be a Spider-Man villain? Sure. Could Deathstroke be a Batman villain? Absolutely. But I don't really view him as that. And, and he is cool aesthetically and, and just as a character, but we'll see. Um, other things. What's your take on the spinoff shows? Do you feel like this is a good move? Do you feel like this is a bad move? Like what's, what's your feel for it? And how closely should they tie into the movies? Uh, I think they should tie right into the movies. Uh, basically, if uh, if they are planned, right? So if they are limited series and the end of them, the the latter half starts to integrate right into, I think that's uh, acceptable. If there are two to three seasons and you, you find little breadcrumbs into it, I think that's fine. I don't think there should just be an open-ended, let's do this as long as we can. That will fail. I think the Penguin has an easy... Uh, easier concept to write obviously it's it's a crime it's a mafia uh situation i don't think the cop situation is going to work because we had you know gotham on i think it was on fox that oh. ran people oh. liked it enough with you know ben mckenzie um but i don't think that that one will really last hard pass um Apologies to anybody who likes Gotham and or network TV, but that was rough. That was rough for me. I am a major hater on network TV, like the biggest hater. So if you are a fan of network TV, just plug your ears. I, I can't handle it. Yeah. Um, Cam's origin story is how much he hates. That's, that's my TV. villain origin story. It's going to be me taking down all of the major networks <laughs> just through what? bad word of mouth and tweets. <laughs> What what show was it that sent you over? <laughs> Gotham might have been it, to be fully honest with you. Like, that might have been what did it for me. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know which way they'll go for it. I feel like with the shows, and, and we'll, we can leave it with this, I feel like the shows are high ceiling, low floor situations where it could be awesome. And the ultimate enhancer for the movies and, and a way to really get immersed in the story and to stay to stay connected with the story in between films or it could be distracting. And if those shows suck and then they have to tie them directly into the movies and then they have to make the movies reference back to the shows, it could be like, youch. Um, yeah. That's so true. I have faith because one thing that's very clear from this movie, and I don't know why I'm holding this Sharpie. I've been holding it this entire time. I don't even know I where like it, it came from. Um, like it. But one thing that is clear is that Matt Reeves has a hyper-focused vision for this character this story this arc um so if if he's behind all of it then we know that it's gonna probably stay the course hopefully but we'll see that's the batman that's all we've got to talk about this week thank you guys so much for bearing with us through some weird scheduling stuff and for listening to our review of the Batman. We'll have another movie review for you as well as some movie news next week. We'll try to get back on our normal schedule. We will be reviewing next week. And I haven't even told Kirk this yet because I, I just assume that it's a foregone conclusion. Let's say it on three. Let's okay. see if we say the same oh, movie no. on three or three, then the movie, what three, do you then do? the movie. Yeah. Okay. One, two, three, the Turning Adam red. project. <laughs> <laughs> no, Kirk. It's got to. I think we have to review Turning. We'll we'll ask on social if we're going to review Turning Red or The Atom Project or both. Um, we'll see what happens. But Turning Red drops on drops on Disney Plus tomorrow. It's the latest Pixar Disney and Pixar film to be released. The Atom Project, Project drops, drops on Netflix tonight as well. Overnight, 
There you go. And that's Ryan Reynolds, Mark Ruffalo, et cetera, et cetera. Et Jennifer cetera. Garner. Hello. Jennifer Garner. Yeah. Um, so we'll see. Well, me and Kirk will literally fist fight to figure out what movie we'll be <laughs> reviewing, but it will be one of those two things. So be sure to stay tuned for that. As a reminder, you can listen to us in podcast form on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, etc. You can watch us if you're used to listening, and I know many of you are because we used to be just a podcast. You can also watch us on YouTube. Um, when we stream, we stream on YouTube, Twitch, and Facebook simultaneously. We do that on Monday nights. Um, and stick with us. We've got some exciting stuff coming up, not just whatever we're reviewing next week, but also Moon Knight is coming up soon, which means Spilled Popcorn will be coming back. We've got a lot of exciting movies coming up, including Morbius, Sonic the Hedgehog 2. Um, you know, we're, we're less than two months away from Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, so there's going to be a ton of really fun movie content, not to mention the Oscars are just two weeks away uh, this Sunday. So two weeks away from this Sunday, we'll be talking about the Oscars and doing some streaming and stuff around that. So you're not going to want to look away. Follow Popcorn for Breakfast for all your latest on movie news and reviews. And with that, we will leave you with our um, executive producer who we want to thank, Ryan Spriggs, as well as the band who created our original music, Rhetoric. You're hearing them right now, and you can hear them also on Spotify. But we will see you guys next week. Talk to you then. 